Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamtel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Andvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Coca-Cola means perpetual profit for you, Mr. Boyd, in every phase of your business. As a business getter, Coca-Cola is second to none. In any competitive situation, I always sell the reputation of the product. Yes, but your competitor has made me a pretty good offer. Pretty good, Mr. Cummings, isn't good enough if you're interested in perpetual profit from a machine. Only Coca-Cola, the leader, can lead you to that. And only Coca-Cola can offer you the machine I sell. It's an exclusive with Coca-Cola, made for us by the Vendo Company, the world's largest manufacturer of automatic merchandising equipment. All right, everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Preferred Shares podcast. My name is Douglas Ott, one of the three hosts of the show, and I'm going to send it right over to Lawrence Hamptel to talk about how he chose the very first topic for the very first episode of our podcast. Hey, Doug. So our first topic I thought would be kind of interesting is our general scope of this podcast is somewhat open-ended, but we're going to be looking at uh, business history. And one of my little Twitter sticks is to do uh, forgotten stocks, some forgotten compounder or company from the past that was a story stock in its day and has since been uh, long forgotten. And Last year, I did a little thread on Automatic Canteen, which was sort of a bubble stock in the late 50s, early 60s. And I thought, well, we've all had experiences with vending machines, whether in college, getting a soda pop at the library or at a hotel. And it just simply never occurred to me that that these sort of basic machines had once been part of a stock market bubble. So the, the deeper I dug into that. I came up with this idea for a, a podcast episode that would explore the vending machine industry, its history, and uh, this little mini bubble that most people have long since forgotten about in the late 50s, early 60s. So that's kind of the, the, the sales pitch How there. did you find Automatic Canteen? Do you even remember how you stumbled upon? I think there was a point in time, maybe it was um, some letter I had read about from the late 50s or something like that, talking about some of the blue chip stocks, and it popped up on one of the screeners, and I happened to cross some old financial analyst journals from the period and uh, talked about a lot of these types of companies that were trading at high price-to-earnings multiples, and 
you see a name like automatic canteen, it automatically grabs your attention and you think, what the hell is that? And so I dug a little bit deeper and turns out it's a vending machine company. And so, you know, one thing led to another. Yeah, as they always do. So the first place we're going to start is kind of a uh, very quick history of vending machines, which has a surprisingly storied industry, you know, many millennia. Yeah, so this can be read on Wikipedia, among other sources, but apparently one of the first instances of a of a vending machine concept goes back to ancient Egypt several millennia ago, which is basically what they had was a holy water <laughs> dispenser. You put in the you put in the coin, and uh, the weight of the coin set up some kind of a lever, which would put obviously with via gravity uh, push down the lever, which would open a valve, which would release the holy water, and then at some point things would shift and rebalance and the coin would roll down and the lever would move back up and the valve would close until the next person inserted a coin. So uh, I guess that's it's sort of an interesting uh, adaptation for that machine, but, but uh, the concept really hasn't changed all that much in the uh, couple thousand years since. And really vending machines have a relatively long history, even in the U.S., going back to the 19th century around World War I. Uh, these things continued to sort of grow and in their adoption, you would find them in uh, kind of restaurants around New York City where people would insert a nickel and get some soup, or maybe a hot meal, a sandwich, something like that. And it was sort of uh, uh, convenience for them. But for the most part, they were coin only. I think almost all of them just took nickels. There's a little bit of a, a little sidebar there, which is interesting, which is because of the limitations of the uh, machinery, Coca-Cola, for example, kept the price of their drinks at a nickel uh, for 60, 70 years, something like that, because they, there was no way to, to raise the prices effectively. Their drink wasn't worth 10 cents, but it was worth more than five, and they actually petitioned Congress to mint a seven and a half cent coin so that they could raise their prices and cover their costs for these vending machines, which I think is how most people bought their yeah, sodas. Yeah, that was a wild story. So, I mean, just think of the sticker price shock, you know, when the price of your usual Coke bottle doubles from a, a nickel yeah, to a dime. Yeah, I mean, and this, and this is at a time, I think, when maybe the average daily wage is probably a dollar or less. So, you know, fairly significant, although it's, it's a, not even a, an afterthought for us today. And uh, there was also the issue of bogus coins, which they referred to as slugs. People would insert these, these similarly shaped, maybe similarly weighted lead coins, not really coins, but they look like coins, into the machines. And that was kind of a source of loss for the vending machine operators. It was a type so, of shrinkage you know, of in a way, really, right? <laughs> exactly right. I mean, one of the theoretical advantages to a vending machine is uh, reduced theft because it's, it's just simply hard to steal from it versus, you know, taking something from a shelf and putting it in your purse and so on. But with these slugs, that was a real problem. And, and so for maybe, I guess, around 1900 to the 1950s, these machines were really not changed all that much. And, and so I believe the uh, the slug detector or slug rejector, as it was known, came about in the 30s. 
So that was one slight improvement on the overall operation. But by and large, these machines didn't really change until the late 50s. So that's kind of the the general history of the industry, the basic concept. Yeah, well, I've got I, – let's go back and uh, discuss a few other big – uh, innovations along the history after the holy water. You know, one of the ones that I read about in our collective research was I was telling you guys about English pubs in the late 19th century. There were tobacco dispensers. It's a real simple contraption where you just insert a coin and a latch opens up, revealing the tobacco for the purchaser. But the problem is, the purchaser is the one that's responsible for closing the top of the tobacco box again. So what really wound up happening was that an employee of the pub or tavern had to stand next to this little contraption to make sure that the box was closed properly and that no one was taking advantage of what really is the honor system, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. It just seem more yeah. more like a machine not, or a contraption to uh um that was kind of a curiosity at that point but i i'm not i'm not <laughs> sure how rigorously enforced the honor system was at a 19th century english pub but apparently not too well um, but when it came to the u.s one of the very first kind of vending machines if i got my research up in front of me was to dispense gum thomas adams was one of the first inventors of a vending machine to sell packets of gum for his own company, Adams Gum, and put these things on train stations in 1888 in the U.S. And I think the next pretty big innovation were parking meters. The very first parking meters to be rolled out in the U.S. were in Oklahoma City in, I think, 1930-something. And pretty soon after that, you know, you got hundreds of thousands of meters across the U.S. in the 40s and 50s, you know, all collecting tolls and money for uh, local governments and to make parking more efficient for businesses on the sides of streets. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like some of the, uh, the recurring themes and all of these additional uses was to alleviate labor issues, try to automate things, obviously, as, as much as possible. Uh, to do that, keep costs under control. And I think uh, by and large, you know, the initial uses of these things were to accommodate impulse purchases, whether you, you've had a drink and you want to smoke in the English pub example, or you're at the waiting for the, for the train and you don't, you want some gum because your breath smells bad, whatever the case <laughs> might be. But, you know, fairly, fairly simple things that you can sell. They're small, easy to stock and and uh, worth a nickel. Yeah. 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 I think getting to uh, when people are standing around bored with nothing to do, we take it for granted that we've got pocket computers. Back then, what did, what did people do to alleviate boredom? Vending machines were, were part of the solution, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So a, a little bit more history there as we get to this. This bubble period in the 50s and 60s was you, you really had just two main companies that were kind of the, the, the national operators. They were ABC Corp, I believe, and, and Automatic Canteen. And, and so there were really not a lot of ways for investors to participate in the vending machine marketplace. But 
a couple of innovations occurred in the late 50s, which was basically that you had a, uh, a machine that was developed that could convert cash. So all of a sudden, you, you, didn't, you weren't just at the mercy of a nickel. You could put in a $1 and a $5 bill, and you would get your change back. And so that made the, or opened up the possibility, rather, for a lot more items to be vended through the machines. So that was sort of like the, what would they say nowadays, that the TAM was immediately <laughs> yeah. expanded. You could go from cigarettes and gum to any number of different things. And uh, also, you had uh, a lot of consolidation in the industry. So obviously, when you, you think of like vending machines, maybe the average uh, vending machine company or operator has just a couple of machines scattered around different office parks and so on. Um, but when these companies started to consolidate, they started to have a national footprint, which the premise is you introduce economies of scale and those things would start to uh, be immensely more profitable than they were. And then I guess the, the bigger issue too was that there was a, a lot of labor issues after World War II. Wages had shot up. Big manufacturing companies like American Motors had cafeterias where they, they provided that as a benefit to their employees, but they were losing money on the cafeteria services. And so vending machines sort of had this promise of being able to accommodate the employees, provide the service, and, uh, and not lose so much money and maybe even be profitable. So kind of uh, overnight with these innovations and, and against this economic backdrop, the assessment of investors for these companies changed dramatically. And just for, for an example, uh, price-to-earnings multiples doubled and, and tripled in some cases. And I think there were something like 50 IPOs in 1961. Yeah, I got to be a, a true so, mania. Classic but bubble. before we talk more in depth about kind of the technological innovations that kind of got this bubble, this mini bubble going, let's go back a little and can you talk a little bit more about uh, the business model model of how you know then the vending machine business works, which I think Devin uh, can tie in a very interesting anecdote um, about Buffett and his pinball pinball machine empire. Well, I mean the the basic premise of a of a vending machine is that you 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 have your cost of goods sold, which is part of your overhead. You stock your machines with whatever they might be, soda pops. Uh, candy, salty snacks, not so much cigarettes anymore. And you go to the places where those people are, where you have an audience, uh, whether it be a, a university campus, uh, a laundromat, uh, an office building. And of course, they're going to take some of your profits. And but you can't have all the profits? And unfortunately, <laughs> no, there's always somebody trying to trying to take a little bit away from you each time. But that's sort of the idea is that you just kind of extract a little bit of profit from those impulse purchases where you have a high traffic, high instances of people walking by with a dollar, whatever they want to drink, they want a snack. In some cases, I guess, where you need a necessity like maybe ice in a, in a hotel room. But and, and usually the you're the only or, vending machine in that particular geography, right? Yeah, I mean, you're. I, I, I that's can why only you share the profits or the revenues from the machine, right? 
That's the concession part. Yes, because they they they're right. They they give you sort of the uh, monopoly for that particular chunk of real estate. I love I love that. That's word. how it works in theory from an investing course. standpoint. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so Devin, maybe this is a good segue for you to talk about or remind our audience about the um, Buffett and his pinball empire in Oh, oh in yeah, DC. I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure most of them or many of them are familiar with the story. It's covered in just about every book that talks about, you know, Warren Buffett. But uh, I think it was uh, 1946. Buffett was a teenager. I think he was 16 or 17 at the time. And he goes out with one of his good friends and they buy some old used pinball machine for like $25. And they, they fix it up. You know, Warren's friend is good with his hands. They fix it up and they, go to a local barber shop and they say, Hey, if you let us put our machine in this corner, that's not being used, we'll split the profits with you 50, 50, which is a, a pretty good proposition. That's generous. I think it, it see, see, that's what I thought too. But, it, but it, I mean, it makes sense. It, it, it's a well-structured deal. If not, if not, you know, terribly simple in that it, it de-risks it for the barber shop, right? You know, they're not using the corner. If it doesn't make any money, well, they'll boot them out. And it reduces, you know, war, the upfront costs for Warren and his buddy. And so, you know, the, the barbershop, they agree. All right, well, set up your machine in the corner. We'll see how it goes. And but what was the other part of the sales pitch? Why did Warren think the barber should find this a lucrative idea? And wasn't wasn't part of the pitch, uh, you know, for patrons that are waiting for their hair to be well, cut? Right. It, 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 it's just like you, provides, you touched on earlier to, to cure the boredom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To to cure the boredom, you you don't you don't have your uh, phone, your computer sitting in your pocket, so you're not sitting around waiting for your haircut. There's that pinball machine. Yeah. So yeah, they, they set up in the corner, and they check on it like a day later, and it's already earned a couple dollars. And wait, like, and the machine it, itself cost twenty five. Right. It fixed up minimum, you know, minimal minimal cost to to get it, uh, you know, into decent enough condition. Within like a week, even accounting for the fact they're they're giving the barbershop like fifty percent of the proceeds, they basically have enough to buy a second machine already. So so Gosh. they go out, they're shopping around for another old beat up machine. They fix it up, they find a second barbershop, you know, get get it set up in there. They add a third and a fourth, and it kind of keeps going until all of a sudden, you know, they have eight or nine of these kind of all around town, uh, minting money. Uh, and unlike traditional vending machines, I mean, the beauty of this is you, you don't have a lot of inventory to manage, right? It's a right. fixed game. You, you, you have two things. You, you have to collect the coins, right, and split the proceeds. And then you have to be on call in case one of these things breaks down, which apparently they did all the time because, uh, you know, they're old. And so they were making these repair calls all the time. But even so, you know, even with the cost of repairs, they were they're making quite a bit of money off this little endeavor so much so that like within one year I think they went out and they sold the, sold the business for over a thousand bucks. I think in a conversation I, I remember uh, hearing Buffett, Buffett said it was the best business he was ever in and it was all downhill ever since. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I I can't imagine how that must feel. Um, <laughs> But I, one of the other yeah. parts of this story... It's, it's too bad things didn't really work out for him. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the other, one of the other parts of this story is retold by Robert 
Hagstrom in one of his books, which I, I think also ties into the vending machine aspect. Warren at a, an earlier age read a book called A Thousand Ways to Make a Thousand Dollars. This was, he was probably like nine years or 10 years old. But in one of the chapters was a chapter about selling your services. And part of this was, you know, vending machines or, or coin operated machines that are placed in various businesses. And one of these categories was just simple weighing machines where people inserted penny or a nickel to figure out how much they weigh while they wait in line at the drugstore, the grocery store. And the story was basically someone else had placed a, a weighing scale in some guy's uh, drugstore. The drugstore owner sees how many people are paying just to see their uh, weights displayed on the machine. And he decides to buy a bunch of machines for himself and put it in his stores and other places that he owns and made a small fortune doing that. Buying machines to earn money, to buy more machines, to make more money, you know, that compounding effect. And I think that also had a great impact on uh, young Warren and ties directly into this episode on, on vending machines. And, and another interesting thing that I also remember from the various Buffett biographies is that he had a true concern about the mafia during this <laughs> pinball business. And you know, I, I read uh, you know, both of the biographies that were written about him. And that was mentioned both times, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I kind of dismissed it as like, that's just Buffett being super conservative like he always is. But I read uh, or skimmed through the biography of the founder of Automatic Canteen. Founder of Automatic Canteen, his name is Nathaniel Leverone. And reading through that, there was a true concern and a very real stereotype that the mafia, in fact, was involved with many of these kind of vending machine coin operated apparatuses spread around in the major cities. You know, you know, the mob split up different territories for their machines. And, you know, of course, they never serviced them. They used shoddy merchandise, bad candy bars, expired peanuts and all these various things and just people dealt with it. And there was a kind of a negative on average, a negative experience that the public had with all these vending machines from a very early point in time. You can kind of see why they would be attracted to it though, because yeah. vending machines are one of those businesses that's sort of conducive to money laundering. Right. So right. Uh, it, it seems like that would be a, a an obvious target. And, for them, so. you know, you can, keep as accurate or as inaccurate records as you want and whoever space they're using probably has doesn't have much of a say in it you know especially if you're the mob dealing with the mob but anyways i want to talk a little bit more about leverone and his how he founded automatic canteen he had a bad well i wouldn't say bad but maybe an awful experience you know he was in chicago waiting on the L train. And this is a, a 40, you know, man in his mid forties had a successful career as a business salesperson, you know, successful enough that he had invested and saved his money in uh, Chicago real estate since the early, you know, the turn of the century in the early 1900s. And he made a very good investments and 
by that time, he had been managed, just managing his real estate portfolio for several years. But he was waiting at the train station and he decide, he sees these weighing machines. You know, again, with the Buffett example, he sees the weighing machines, decides he wants to try them out, inserts a penny into one of them. The thing spits out a card that says, you weigh 250 pounds or some preposterously large number. And this is a man that is 5 foot 11 and pretty slim and fit. So he puts in another penny and he gets a number that is way below his actual weight of 155 pounds. All right, so two pennies wasted. Bad experience. He then spies a gum machine. He inserts a nickel for uh, some gum. This machine takes his money but doesn't give him a gum. Final thing that he does, he sees a machine that uh, vends some peanuts. He puts in a coin for some peanuts and he gets a handful of moldy peanuts as his reward. So awful experience. He is kind of angry and incensed. And at the same time, he gets this business idea. Like there is, there is no possible way that he could go wrong by just doing the opposite of everything the vending machine industry had been doing historically. And that's the genesis of the idea of automatic canteen. You know, middle-aged guy with some capital, raises some money, 50 or 60,000 from friends and family, does a bunch of market research for about a year, finds out that he really learned nothing from people that were in the industry and started automatic canteen in the late 20s. And he also had a very interesting kind of code of ethics as it was described in the biography but it was more like a set of business principles and there were eight that were listed i'll give you kind of a quick rundown hopefully and they all deal with just giving the public a square deal by operating machines that return the coin if no merchandise was vended you know selling full size standard units of merchandise of known value frequently if it was a candy bar these were uh, kind of smaller in size and kind of second-rate or third-rate unknown brands at the time. Regularly servicing the sh machines once a week um, so that fresh merchandise would be vended. Doing their best to design devices that could reduce the temptation to cheat the machines with slugs. Creating mechanisms that would reject them and having a well-trained service force of employees that were professional in look and action. So that's how Automatic Canteen got started. It's, it's, it's a really yeah, it's trying to clean up, cleaning the, industry. up the industry. And, and again, that gets back to another principle that Buffett and Charlie Munger have frequently harped on is that doing the right thing always can, can lead to amazing things. That's true. And if you think about just the the vending machine i mean to have a a wider appeal to consumers you have to establish a sense of trust that i'm not going to be cheated this is an honorable transaction i'm going to get what i pay for and of course you think back then the 20s and 30s a nickel was a lot of money and and so it was a sizable transaction for consumers and and so your choice was to, to risk losing that money in a defective or crooked machine, I guess. And also you'd get uh, oftentimes defective goods. So it was an opportunity for somebody to come in and 
and, and change the complexion of the entire industry by improving the service, the machinery, and everything yeah, else. And, and, and to, well, go ahead, Devin. Say, what, what, what's funny is, you know, you're exactly right in terms of what Warren and Charlie often say about, you know, doing the right thing and, you know, earning repeat business. But when you, when you look at their little, uh, you know, Warren's uh, pinball operation, it's funny because he and his friend, you know, they, they operated under some larger business name and they pretended they weren't the owners. And all of these barber shops, they would say, oh, these, these machines are great and we're making all this money, but they, they, they keep breaking and we really want the company to bring in the new, more expensive machines. And and Warren and his friend would go, well, we'll bring it up with management and we'll see what they oh, say. I, I forgot that part of the story. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point, Devin. Um, but to be fair, I mean, they were kind of young teenagers, um, young, young and dumb and looking to make a quick buck. So I, I, I think older yeah. Buffett would have uh, probably done things a little bit differently. But they, I mean, they lacked it was just two teenagers and they kind of lacked the credibility needed to, um, and, get, and the get capital, in the door. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I mean, if, if rascals do how well honor worked, I mean, they would flock to it is, you know, one of the things Munger has, has shared with all of us mm -hmm. Berkshire Hathaway followers, but there's, there's another few really interesting examples of the types of slugs that enterprising, <laughs> employees and you know john q public citizen used and, and this is from the 20s and 30s from the machine the, the new machines the automatic canteen placed in various um manufacturing plants one example so automatic canteen discovered that several of their machines in one place was just full of slugs at the end of every week and every month top management has to do some digging and figure out why this is happening they they quickly find out that the plant that they had placed their machines manufactured coins for small Latin American countries. So all the, all the workers at this plant were using these, you know, foreign coins that they were making every day and getting free candy. So, so automatic, you know, quickly replaced those machines and put in new ones that had the, you know, the slug rejection technology and, and solve that problem. Another interesting example of human creativity, another place that where they had placed their machines, you know, they discovered that they were losing their merchandise, but there is no money and no slugs in the receptacles. All right, so very mysterious. How was this happening? So management figures out this is a, this is a manufacturing plant of HVAC and refrigeration equipment. The employees at this plant had created molds of coins and they filled them with water uh. in the morning, which froze into the correct <laughs> size, which they then used these frozen little molds of, uh, you know, ice water coins to get free candy bars. Okay. So if you're, I feel like if you're going to go through that much trouble, you can have the damn Snickers bar because you clearly want it so, more than I, I do. I mean, at that so. period of time, there was no solution for that. So they just had to entirely remove their business from that place. Well, just, just, just turn up the heater <laughs> in the, the 100 degrees in the office. All right. So that that's my you know, several anecdotes from Automatic Canteen. And we can resume 
where we had left off in our prior discussion. Where were we talking? We were. I think we were going to talk more in depth about the technological innovations that was one of the factors in creating this boom and bubble in these vending machine uh, manufacturing companies and operating companies. Yeah. So you're talking about slugs and and. Uh... By the way, I think we all have an affinity for some of these old uh, industrial names. So National Slug Rejectors had a kind of a monopoly on this mechanism or device that could detect these slugs, which pretty much eliminated that problem. As I understand it, the coins that, that we use, a nickel, a penny, a quarter, they all have their different metallic compositions, and slugs are generally lead, I think. And, and so the... It's a magnetic device, if I if I remember correctly, that if it was a, a slug, it wouldn't be accepted, and it would it would roll down the uh, the other chute. But if it was an acceptable coin, the magnetic device would accept it, and it would go through, and the transaction would be complete. So that was a huge uh, innovation in terms of improving the economics for wider adoption for both uh, distributors and and people who wanted those machines or what be willing to have them on their properties. The other was the uh, the device that a- allowed for the conversion of paper currency. I mean, prior to this, you would have to go in, give the clerk a dollar, he'd give you the nickels, and then you'd use the nickels for your your vending transactions. Well, with the paper currency reader, so to speak, that was uh, developed by Universal Controls, which I believe... Uh, that was one of the so, major companies of yeah, the time. To, to give you a clear idea, it was, uh, this technology was developed in a partnership with Universal Controls. It was between Universal Controls and National Rejectors. And, and just to make it more confusing, National Rejectors was owned by Universal Match. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes that's, <laughs> that's correct. So... So anyway, that, that became this, this huge innovation that, that I, once again, it allowed for a much wider adoption of, of these machines, a much bigger opportunity set as far as how vending machines could be utilized in terms of retail and uh, food service. So that was sort of the, the big major thing that sort of took it from a mundane industry to sort of bubble yeah just think of all i mean the the additional dozens or hundreds of new merchandise categories that opened up being able to pay with uh paper currency a dollar bill or five dollar bill um in the very early 1960s I, i think it came out first in machines in 1960 i think right they were people Macy's I think at one point had had talked about using machines to 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 sell their their clothing items and apparel in their department stores which is kind of interesting considering Macy's sort of uh, an upscale retailer and you go in there and have a bunch of machines to take your Ralph Lauren or or, or so on it seemed just a little bit foreign to us but that was a possibility that was widely discussed at the time they were even some people thinking that you could have vending machines for life insurance. You just forget the agent and you just go in and say, I'm 30 years old. I'm in good health. I need 50,000 of term, whatever you put in your cash and, and you got your policy. I'm not sure how, how widely those things ever 
came to fruition, but they were definitely posted as plausible things at that well, another, point. Another another interesting thing that ha- when happened or was trialed was um, selling travelers insurance at airports. And I I think we can all say that we don't see any of those vending machines at the airports today. But you you do see the uh, the ticket kiosks, I guess, which is sort of uh, it has for part of the lineage, right, of vending machines. I mean, it's not a, a vending transaction, but you put in your data, it gives you the card, and it's not an actual transaction. But all of those machines, I, as I gather, are derived from that those original yeah, machines. Yeah, they're they're mechanisms for convenience. Is the is the exactly. quality that they share right. One other thing I found kind of interesting is you had, after World War II, vending machines, as they grew in wider adoption, I mean, I guess we kind of forget about during World War II, a lot of these industrial companies were making weapons and things that were critical for the war effort. So 1946 was really the first year that they could dedicate themselves to the fabrication of these vending machines. And, and focus on that exclusively. And then you, you couple that with the disposable income that, that people had um, coming back from the war. The economy maintained its its growth uh, once the things kind of settled down. And I think believe vending sales were, were growing at roughly twice gross national product. So it was growing, and it was a real thing. And then, of course, that was all turbocharged by the innovations we, yeah, didn't, by we the, talked by the, about with the cash yeah, conversion new machine. technology and a few other factors, you know, along with post-World War II period, high inflation for an extended period of time. And high that, labor yeah, costs. translated into high labor costs. And again, this was, a, this was technology that could help reduce that labor cost or take advantage of that arbitrage between capital and labor. There's, there's one thing I found interesting, which is if you have a vending machine, we talk about sort of the bizarre nature of, of what people were thinking could be sold. You don't necessarily have to worry about consumer rejection of those items because they've already been sold on the brand. So if you want a Coca-Cola, you want a Pepsi, you want even a life insurance policy from a, a well-known insurance company, you've already been sold on the value of that product, but now it's more convenient. So looking at it from that perspective, it makes a lot more sense to, to think about how these guys were thinking about it at the time because the, con- the products were already sold in the consumer's mind. All those brands were widely established. Now it just became something that was a lot more convenient for them. And we'll, we'll touch on that later. There's some similarities to that and e-commerce now as far as how that has evolved. Yeah, that's a great point. And and that's another part of the automatic canteen story. The founder, Nathaniel Leverone, went to what was a big candy company in Chicago, Curtis Candy. They made Baby Ruth bars. And he wanted, you know, again, getting to his idea that people would be more willing and actually wanted to buy established brands of known value, you know, full-size candy bars that they know you know, roughly the value that they would have to pay at a drugstore or supermarket. So we went to the president of Candy Bar Company in Chicago and convinced him after some negotiation, like, I want to sell your candy bars. And the president had some hesitancy because of all the negative 
associations that vending machines historically had. And you know, they eventually came to an agreement. These candy bars, Baby Roos and other, other brands that Curtis had sold out. I mean, record sales in several weeks in a row, but eventually sales kind of plateaued. And the reason was people just wanted more variety. Not the, the part of the part of the contract that they struck was an exclusive relationship that Automatic had with Curtis. They could only sell Curtis and no one else's candy bars. No Hershey's. Exactly. No bars, so so Nathaniel uh, had to go back and explain the situation. Like this, you know, sales have kind of plateaued and going down. People want more variety. You know, they obviously enjoy using the machines, and so they renegotiated. The president of Curtis. You know, struck out that clause and said, you can sell whatever you want. And then Nathaniel goes to the president of Hershey. And at that point in time, Hershey had already done their due diligence on automatic canteen. They knew it to be a, a reputable company with a good reputation. And they just, heck yes, we'll give you as much Hershey candy bars as you can sell in these machines. So yeah. it's a win-win. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I found kind of interesting about going through this process was was looking through this 1962 article by James O'Brien in a financial analyst magazine and talking about how all of these mundane companies like Automatic Canteen and, and so on, which had been trading at 10 times earnings, operating on three times profit or sorry, 3% profit margins, something like that. He said, after all, they were the archetype of the modern growth stock. No dividends, no history, and great expectations. And I think that sort of encapsulates every bubble ever in the stock market where sometimes it's it's an industry that has been hiding in plain sight but has a general reappraisal because maybe there's yeah. an innovation that opens it up to, to, to new prospects or it's just something entirely new that's trading on hope alone. But that's basically the, the whole thing in a nutshell, which is that these companies almost overnight exploded in the minds of investors. And they thought the whole world is going to be subsumed by robots selling us everything from hot coffee and cigarettes to life insurance, uh, medications, and who knows what that else. Could, that could still happen, it Actually, Larry. would probably be – yeah, that's true. And actually, looking looking back, it would probably be a shorter list to think of what they didn't want to sell in the vending machines and what they had plans yeah. to sell. So I'll say, coffee, cigarettes, and life insurance, what else do you need? You have the trifecta exactly, covered. Right. <laughs> 99% of all your needs and wants. Lawrence, could you remind our listeners kind of the dramatic move of some of these stocks had in, in a very short time? Yeah, so there's there's one example of uh, trying to think it's it's Universal yeah, Match, which is, as we talked about, that's kind of the, the poster child for all of this. And it went from just under $4 in 1957 to over $80 in 1960, so a mammoth move for a what, stock what, like what that. What multiple move is and, that? 20x? And uh, from 20 times to 60 times. So for a stock that goes from 40 to 80, that's a, a 20 times move, but a three times move in the multiple. So that does imply a, a, a high level of earnings growth to some extent. It obviously implies a lot of a lot of froth and, and uh, overvaluation too, but it does kind of speak that speak to the point that in this period, 
there was growth in vending. It just got to be extrapolated to the point where these stocks were considerably overvalued. Yeah, well, to talk more a little about Universal Match, I mean, I've got the financial data in front of me. And, and to remind listeners, Universal Match is the one that, in, in partnership, developed this technology of, of being able to read paper currency and you know, dispense the correct change for uh, their vending machine manufacturing clients. And this all kind of began in 1958, 1959. Universal Match had 44 million in revenues in 1958. That went up to 72 million in 1959, and then 100 million in 1960, which was kind of the very height of the vending machine bubble. But post that period, you know, sales declined minimally from almost 100 million down to 98 million, down to 95, 97 million in the ensuing years. And what did drop a lot was the operating margins of Universal Match. So the the earnings that people believed would be coming, you know, high high growing earnings did not actually occur. And do we have any examples of why people thought those, you know, that growth in revenues and earnings didn't come about? My understanding is everybody kind of thought that because of the consolidation in the industry that you would introduce these economies of scale and you'd have a national versus a regional or local footprint. So your margins would improve due to that, but it just simply didn't materialize. And the earnings growth never really caught up with the, uh, the, the top line number. I don't believe they ever got close to the to the point where they were in the early '60s. It's that was kind of the peak, and, and has been really ever since. And in, in real terms, if I remember correctly, yeah. But here's another example: Automatic Retailers of America. I think they IPO'd in 1960 or 19. Yeah, I think it was 1960. It was a good time to IPO. Yeah. Well, good let's, timing. Where, where's the data? <laughs> I think you already mentioned Lawrence that over 50 vending machine related companies IPO'd in 1960 or 1961 somewhere in that time frame correct i mean that's just right. everyone saw the new technology saw the opportunity you know the sun is shining you know when is the best time to make hay well and kind of also to put that in perspective i mean how much smaller was the stock market back then than it is today uh, when was the last time we had 50 IPOs in any one industry in uh, such a short period well, of yeah, time. Yeah, one particular and, industry, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, we can all re- remember recently all the new SPACs that IPO'd during the COVID era and year after, you know, 2020, 2021. Sure, electric vehicles, um, uh, battery storage, all those sorts of things, but... I'm not sure, and of course, I I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm not sure relative to market capitalization, how there there cannot have been too many episodes similar to this where you simply have this huge issuance, uh, 50 companies that had to have been a huge chunk of overall market capitalization all coming out at the same time. Or even just looking at the total number of new IPOs for that particular year. We don't have the full data, but I think we can guess that vending was probably the if not the majority of new issues in that time frame it was you know the you know the plurality 
Right. Well, and, and to a certain extent, too, these lofty multiples kind of were self-reinforcing for the bubble because you had some companies like Automatic Canteen um, trading at 40, 50 times. And then, of course, they would go and acquire smaller players, which were maybe at 15, 20 times using their stock as currency. Yeah. And, and so they were able to kind of gobble up and, and consolidate the industry, which uh, in, in the minds of investors only improved their. Yeah, outlook. that was that was so it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a recurring theme, I guess. And in, in some of these bubbles is that uh, they become somewhat self-reinforcing until reality sort of catches yeah, up. This, with I them. mean, is this the theme of any industry that is being kind of rolled up and consolidated. There's a, a good Time magazine article that it, it came out in 1960 at the, at the peak, May, May 16th of 1960. You can read it online if you want to. It's, it's in the modern living section, and it's called The Automatic Salesman. And yeah. I wanted to read just a little paragraph from that because it kind of sums all of this stuff up. It says, quote, Wall Street's newest romance is with the automatic vending machine industry, which is changing the eating and buying habits of America. Shares and vending companies have suddenly been tagged with the magic phrase growth stocks, and they have risen spectacularly even in a declining market. In January, the stock of Universal Match, which rings up 40% of its sales and vending equipment, sold for 83 and last week closed at 134 and three quarters. Vendo, the largest maker of automatic vending machines, has jumped from 23 and three quarters to 66. While Automatic Canteen, the biggest combined food selling and machine manufacturing company, rose from 21 to 31 and a half. Vending machine sales rose from 600 million in 1946 to 2.3 billion last year. The industry's 125 manufacturers and 6,100 operators are confident that they can maintain an average yearly sales increase of 10%, which would hit $4 billion by 1965. Machines now dispense 15% of the nation's cigarettes. Last year, vending machines sold 2 billion cups of coffee, 20% of the nation's candy bars and soft drinks. More than 4 million robot vendors offer everything from onion soup and insurance to a spray of French perfume or a 30-second sniff of oxygen to ease hangovers. <laughs> and if the coffee isn't quite like home, at least it's hot and close at hand. And to me, that is just sort of the perfect summary of, of what was going on at the time. I mean, you just had this, this huge thing of, of fundamental sort of growth of consumables, cigarettes and drinks, but then also anything from... French perfume to uh, Gosh, hangover yeah, treatments. I mean, you had uh, a pretty free reign to try anything. I mean, who wouldn't with this new technology that had been introduced? I mean, the sky's kind of the limit, like it always is with any new technology, right? Uh, well, at, at the very uh, first, but then, you know, people eventually figure out what works and what doesn't work. And there's a lot of things that did not work. And uh, I, I got to be honest, I'm really curious about how that onion soup was. And I'd try it. I would. <laughs> well, I, I do think there may be one other aspect to that that I hadn't thought about as far as the uh, the hangover cure. If I if I remember correctly, this is about the time that people became uh, more open about drunk driving, and you had these new restrictions on drinking while driving. And so, imagine 
that you've been out drinking a little too much and you want to cure that right away. And so that vending application of the hangover cure was probably tied in some way to the changing laws surrounding drunk driving. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the the mania eventually ended. The market consolidated a lot. And e- even going back to late 50s, the FTC was involved in kind of policing the industry, making sure it didn't become too consolidated. I mean, they almost broke up a merger between Vendo and one of its other main competitors, Vendorlater, because they... <laughs> The combined company would have would have had more than 50% of the market share for manufacturing vending machines. But the reason they allowed it to go through was that it was later found that Vendorlater had infringed on <laughs> Vendo's patents. So they were going to go out of business almost anyways. So the acquisition was allowed to go through. So there was a lot of consolidation. There was a lot of shakeout in a very short amount of time. The mania ended, and as all manias do, it's usually boils down to a disconnect between expectations and uh, valuations. But you know, there's some other other factors that contributed to the end, to, you know, to, to the slowing growth in sales and decline in profit margins of some companies. But what were some of the other reasons for the bubble to burst in this? You know, it's it's one of those things where there's always a guess as to what actually ended it. From a stock perspective, I always kind of think it's it's when that marginal buyer disappears. At some point, there's nobody left to buy the stock who wants to, and, and then that's when you maybe get a disappointing quarterly result, and then reality sets in, and we understand that the industry might grow, but not at a rate fast enough to justify these valuations. And of course, the companies will will march on in their operations in some form or another, but they, they don't ever really generally return to those lofty multiples of, of peak euphoria. But what exactly caused that isn't exactly clear, but I think some of the things that, that sort of dampened the enthusiasm for these stocks was you had the introduction of new competition. For example, if, if one of the major premises of vending machine growth was this readily available, cheap, and, and somewhat profitable food to cafeteria eaters in a, in a corporation like General Motors, let's say. Well, now with McDonald's and fast food, you can go out, grab a sandwich, something that's probably higher quality than what you'll find in the machine, and you can come back and be on the job and, and eat. And so I think fast food, which was really starting to come into its own in the in the 50s and 60s, but sort of took off from there, became a major competitor to the thesis that these, these uh, company workers were going to be just going crazy at the vending machines and the, and the company cafeterias. That's one thing. You you had some other things like the inflation in the 70s, which really sort of put the clamps down on consumer spending. So so there's that. But there's also sort of a, an interesting anecdote from 1964, which is that despite all of the, the great potential of the cash reading machines, they're still predominantly coin-operated machines. And there was actually a coin shortage in 1964. <laughs> where some people had petitioned the, the, the Treasury to mint more coins, but uh, they didn't do it in, in time. And so 
as part of this whole process, there were so many coins consumed by vending machines that the country was running the risk of, of running out of. Yeah, there is uh, even the long. chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time testified before Congress, McChesney Martin testified to this fact, like we could run out of coins. It, it was a confluence of factors of, you know, per usual poor planning on the part of Congress and our government, but also the fact that all these vending machines and, you know, pinball machines and coin operated convenience apparatuses uh, contributed to this shortage. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to remember, too, that vending has has still grown over time. The, the pace of growth has obviously tapered off and you still have a lot of vending activity in the country. It's just never quite uh, realized its its potential. But it is sort of interesting to note, and I, I think uh, this is a good time to introduce this, that in Japan, vending is a big deal. And it's much more widely utilized. And, and, and maybe that is the, the lesson here, is that Japan became, to some extent, what people thought America would become as far yeah. as vending goes. I understand that, that in Japan, you can have all sorts of things from uh, toilet paper to bananas to small famous uh, paintings that are sort of in micro, I guess, uh, live crabs and lobsters, uh, Legos. There's a feeder for stray dogs and cats, uh, underpants and bras. So it's it's just sort of interesting that the Japanese culture is much more accepting of the style of commerce than apparently I, Americans I are. I have no idea that, why that is, but I mean, that is uh, something I've viewed from a distance as well. Why is there seem to be so much variety in Japan versus the U.S.? I can only venture <laughs> some guesses, which is that if you look at, um, I assume that the average, in, in Japan, real estate is sort of, and there's not a shortage of it, but it's, it, it, in the U.S. God's we have not a making country, many more lands, Lawrence. <laughs> exactly. But in but in Tokyo, you have these congested areas. And so it's kind of hard to open a department store. It's much easier to put in a machine and go go about your business. And I also think demographics yeah. might play a part where you don't have a lot of young people who are normally the, the staff for these retail operations. And so it's just easier to automate it with the vending machines. But it is it is something to go out and look online and see some of the the vending machine applications in Japan, it's which pretty I nuts. think would be totally, yeah, totally unbelievable to most Americans. Well, consumers. this might be a good place for us to kind of move on to towards the end and um, kind of what is what is the current state of vending in the U.S. and got some figures to to provide some context again about what it was in the 1940s and 60s and what it is today. So we had about $600 million in vending in 1946. It jumped to $2.7 billion in 1961, so a lot of growth there. But in uh, 2020, it dropped down to $13.3 billion from about $24 billion in 2019, so that the pandemic really hurt the vending operations. That was a huge uh, decline. Right now. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you that how much people moving around and yeah. going about their lives is a, a big chunk of vending revenue. 
and it's still not quite back up to pre-pandemic levels. I think last year it clocked in at about $21.7 billion. So it's, it's something like 35% of machines are on manufacturing sites, which, which kind of makes sense. You've got kind of blue-collar workers who are working on the hourly jobs and short breaks, and they'll, they'll take a break and uh, get a snack or something like that. And 25% in offices where I think probably more people are likely to go out to eat, maybe go to Starbucks, something like that, versus get a coffee from the vending machine. So it, it's definitely a big presence still, but as a chunk of overall retail sales, it's a fraction of what it was 60-something yeah, years and, ago. and you found a very interesting article from the New York Times published in 1982. The, the title of the article was Hard Times in Vending Field, which also had some interesting data points. One was that the peak of the number of machines produced in this country was in 1963, you know, relative to 1982. So the peak relative to 1982 was nearly 20 years ago. (laughs) So 683,000 vending machines were made in 1963. Then production fell to 400,000 in 1971, and then to 230,000 in 1980. So, a long way to fall in terms of both the volume and the, just the, the number of years it took to decline that far. I think it's probably safe to say that, that most new machine sales are probably replacement yep. sales. It's, it's hard to imagine that there's much new areas no, it's that, are, probably that are being all uh, replacement um, sales. I mean, the, the article at that in the early 80s, said a vending machine's life is anywhere from 6 to 12 years. You know, it's not a growing market. It's a replacement market, just like the article said. But there's still been a lot of innovations in vending machine technology. I mean, now we don't even have to insert currency. We just tap it with our phone or credit card. Nowadays, probably. Have it scan your eyeball. Yeah, give it a drop of blood, too. (laughs) If you're in a hospital, that might do double duty. (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 honestly amazing how the the technology for payment has changed as far as how it can be read and and how that it makes it easier more seamless but the overall concept really hasn't changed in, in a very well very long and time. and it has still evolved at the same time and the, the the general concepts have remained the same but there still have been new innovations and that kind of leads into new categories of merchandise and talking about Fastenal and their FastVend program, which they started in, uh, I think it was 2007 or 2008. But for listeners, Fastenal is a distributor and manufacturer of basic screws and nuts and bolts. And they've been around for decades and decades. And it was just, what is it, 25 years ago, they introduced this new vending machine program where they would sell their own products and other products used in maintenance and repair operations at manufacturing plants or other, you know, distribution warehouse facilities for the, of their customers. And in seven years, they went from zero in sales to half a billion in revenues selling their products through vending machines on on site at their customers' places of business. And today, 
They've got over 100,000 machines installed on site. These machines typically vend anywhere from $1,000 to $2,000 worth of merchandise every month. And um, you know, revenues from this program in 2022 were $1.8 billion, all through vending machines designed by Fastenal to help you know, their customers not just acquire and purchase products more efficiently, but this is you know, real-time spending tracking. And it's, it's optimizing working capital, yeah, optim- right? Like yes. companies get to outs- outsource work, working capital effectively is their pitch, and they do so hyper-efficiently. Like if you look at the margins too, it's like we're, we're comparing some of the early companies you know, in the in the '60s, where you're trying to low single-digit net margin, where like if ever anything goes wrong, you're you're running negative, yeah. right? You got to figure out what to do. If, if you look at Fastenal, you know they, they have a gross margin of 45%, EBIT 20%, net 15.5. Like those are pretty healthy margins, especially relatively compared to the vending companies of the past. It's it's always kind of interesting for me to see how technology can be implemented in a way to take something that's an old industry, old concepts, but change the economics of it for the, for the better in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just kind of that improvement on the, on the margin, so to speak, but dramatically changes the economic profile of that operation. Yeah. Yes. This was a great example. So let's get up to uh, the end of the episode and kind of answer some questions that sum up or some of the lessons we learned or that were reinforced after digging into this particular topic? Well, I guess I'll start. And it it seems like one of the recurring themes throughout history is how to solve labor-related issues, whether it's a shortage of workers, as may be the case in Japan because of their demographic decline currently with after the COVID pandemic having to deal with a lot of people who have dropped out of the workforce, higher wages and inflation after World War II, all of those things, I think they have fed into different bubbles in a way. And maybe now we're kind of going through that again with artificial intelligence, which is something that people think will will be a productivity enhancer and, and maybe get the get more out of a, a static labor force, so to speak. Yeah. Well, for me, I've got two things that were kind of most interesting for me as I learned about this period in time in, in industry in general. Again, I had the idea reinforced that it's very hard for most investors to benefit from revolutionary technologies. Even if a company continues to grow and maintain its profitability, if you purchase a company at the wrong price, too high of a price, you can still achieve bad results, even though the company continues to do well. And we've, we've seen that in this industry, in particular, kind of in, in that 60s time frame. But we also know lots of other examples in, in the dot-com bubble might come close closest to mind, but... Who knows, the AI mania of, of this past year could become another future example of this. But the other, other thing was just the amazing amount of consolidation and, and mergers and acquisitions activity that occurred in such a brief period of time. 
you had lots of different companies acquiring their way into vending machines that serve food and drinks. You know, Seaberg was a manufacturer of jukeboxes historically, but they acquired their way into vending, you know, candy, food, I think cigarettes and coffee. They acquired five companies in the span of 18 months. I already talked about FTC getting interested in preventing monopolies from forming during this time period. Another last example was Interstate Vending Company, which was founded in 1955, went from zero in revenues and then on an M&A spree for four or five years, they acquired 25 companies in the span of 12 months. So zero in revenues to 60 million in revenues in, in five years, which is just incredible. It, I think I, that's pretty, it's pretty good. good. It's pretty, pretty good, as Larry David might say. So those are my, my two examples. Devin. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on one of my big, big, big takeaways, which was, I mean, this story of the vending machine mania reminds us that price paid matters. You know, if you're paying up a lofty multiple for something, you need just about everything to go right and very little to go wrong. Otherwise, you're probably going to have a bad outcome. Oh, I would say everything has to go right and and be even better. <laughs> right. Most of the time. Right. I mean, the expectations already baked into to a lofty multiple are often uh, impossible to meet. Oftentimes. Um, and, and really, it, you know, it, it highlights that lo looking at cases throughout history, there, there's endless parallels to draw. And going through some of uh, the research that was presented, you know, there, there was a time when uh, I think what cigarettes made up like 16, 60% of volumes uh, in the U.S. for vending machines, like astronomical. And so one question I was, that was floating around in my head was, was some of the growth within this industry just a different expression of the growth and success of the tobacco industry? And all of people kind of chasing the vending you know, industry very early on, it would that, was that a poor expression uh, of, of that bet, right? And I think a big question to ask from an investment perspective is if you see a clear tailwind, you know, what's the best expression you know, to gain exposure, you know, to, to, you know, how you feel about that directionally. And likewise, even now, and maybe this ties to some of the conversations Larry and I have had, which is what are the best expressions currently? Uh, and, you know, I know he's touched on some of the C stores relative to manufacturers, relative to other things, but I saw some interesting parallels there. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 w I would say, um, one thing that I think is is kind of a takeaway too is if you look at a investment performance standpoint, the machines came and went, but what they were selling definitely outperformed the machine manufacturers. <laughs> and I'm I'm willing to bet that the salty snack manufacturers, I'm, I'm pretty sure the tobacco companies, all those things never traded at anything like 40, 50, 60 times earnings. Maybe they did briefly in the nifty 50 period, yeah. but, but by and large, you would have been better off if you wanted to participate in this, this growth of vending. You didn't necessarily have to buy the vending machines to do oh, it. Yeah. You, you could have just 
could have just invested no, in what they awesome were selling. That's an awesome point. Um, so, I think, and I think that gets to the topic yeah. of which group of companies were providing the picks and shovels. Were the vending machine companies providing the picks and shovels to you know the the branded consumer goods companies, or was it vice versa? It almost certainly has to be the <laughs> the, the second option, you know, right? Because they're still they're still they're, they're, they're still yeah, around. They're still around. <laughs> All right, so that that sags into kind of the next some summary topic that I had uh, was doing some research on. Where are some of the giant quote unquote vending companies of the '60s? Where are they now today? Where have they wound up? And the two main ones that I was able to trace the history of pretty easily. One was Automatic Retailers of America. They were actually founded in 1936 under a different name, but the company IPO'd in 1960, and they were one of the two largest vending companies during that time frame. And then it eventually acquired its way into manual food service for large venues or, or you know, corporate cafeterias. And they changed their name to ARA Services in 1969. And then they changed their name to its present name, Aramark, in 1994. And, and Aramark is, is still currently public, even though it had been you know, bought out by management in the 80s, and then they were LBO'd again and, you know, prior to the financial crisis. But that's where automatic retailers turned into Aramark eventually, and they've kind of maintained their, you know, most of their original presence in history. Second one, Canteen, Automatic Canteen, they were eventually acquired by uh, United Kingdom's Compass Group in 1994, and that's where they are um, currently. You know, third minor one is Vendo Corporation. This was the uh, vending company that was the primary manufacturer of the vending machines, but they were eventually acquired by Japan's uh, Sanden Corp in 1988. In which we featured in that. And which we featured in that little yeah, brief intro, yeah, right? Yeah, that was uh, uh, Vendo's yeah. kind of um, promotional advertisement reel to uh, help you know their salespeople sell the machines to place them in various retailing and, and gasoline gasoline station and C stores. I, I believe that was a local Kansas yes, City Vendo company. Yes, Vendo was so, a Kansas uh, City company. Yeah. Um, so, that's where you are based, right? You know. We did. That's true, and we didn't really, we didn't really address that little audio, which was was probably yeah. something that we should do. But that was kind of the pitch, right? Which was that Vendo, which had a, I believe, an exclusive deal with Coca Cola to sell the Coca Cola branded vending machine, and that was the promise that these these salespeople would go to a barber shop, a pharmacy, wherever, and say, "This is like passive income, perpetual profits." I believe is what he says. You're going to have this just income stream with no additional real overhead for you. And, and so I think that's kind of a nice little encapsulation as well as, as to what the promise of these machines was and, and how they were sold at the time and what got people excited. It's everybody's looking for passive income, whether it's Buffett and the pinball machines or somebody with a, a vending machine in the college campus and they're just imagining this this thing on a massive scale. It just uh, never quite Well, not within the time frame everyone was expecting. I mean, some of these companies did quite well over a long period of time, but you know, just during this brief period of mania, yeah, for sure. 
a lot didn't it failed failed to live up to expectations all right so uh to kind of end this show on an interesting note you know we came up came across a bunch of different vending concepts that were kind of one-offs or just too unique to really take off what were some of our favorite or most unique ideas for vending merchandise that we found uh i'm <laughs> i'm still kind of kind of caught up in the idea of people going to macy's and uh this upscale department store and putting in five dollars to get a shirt and the machine kicks it out you know i mean the, the whole premise i think of department stores is you go for the service and you expect somebody to to help you find something that you're looking for and and just the the idea that it would be a, a totally non-human transaction you go through a, a robot so to speak it it just seems sort of difficult to imagine from our perspective in 2023 although to some extent that's that's probably unfair because a lot of people do just that yep. when you go on Amazon or any other any other sort of um e-commerce website and i guess doug to your point you know it, it did take longer for these things to materialize it just the concept of not needing a human interaction to complete your transaction did come about it just and it reached a, a titanic scale it just didn't happen through vending machines it happened through your the internet and a click of your mouse and a package yeah i would i would well who knows where it can go from here but this the the experience that amazon provides and e-commerce provides feels really like the zenith of what uh you know people in the vending industry in the 50s and 60s you know this was what you know beyond their wildest imaginations you know this uh, especially now with same day delivery yeah but 60 years from now we're going to be saying the same thing about right now <laughs> That's true. All right. Um, so one, one thing that uh, one kind of unique one-off idea that I saw in our in our primary research, I I enjoy as a whiskey drinker, I enjoyed seeing a photograph of a nicely dressed woman standing in front of a machine that was vending cold whiskey. Obviously, those wow. things don't exist anymore. And that was, I think, probably just a one-off promotional idea to attract you know attention to a particular store or maybe it was a particular brand of alcohol it's, it's kind of uh, interesting to imagine the state of mind you must have been in to think i'll well, take a shot and, of cold and another whiskey. thing i mean it's on the exact kind of opposite there was um there was also a playboy branded vending machine if you recall lawrence that all that sold um why do you mention me well, when you bring that, that up? you're the one that did the research on this. <laughs> you're the one that found the documents. Um, but anyways, this this Playboy branded machine sold you know two kind of oppo opposing uh, products. Uh, one were kind of like hair of the dog, pick me ups for the morning after, you know your morning after cocktails, and also you know your hot coffee to recover from the night before, all in one machine. They certainly had all your bases covered back then. <laughs> all right, Devin. Yeah, so so you know, br breaking the rules and not answering oh, the good. question instead of something that instead of answering what I was interested in that didn't take off. Like a true politician, I, I'm answering yes, the question I'm deeply you want to answer. 
<laughs> I'm deeply interested in what actually took off, and I still can't get over the fact that the earliest recording vending machine was from what uh, 215 BC in Roman Egypt. I, I, I would love to explore all of the technologies that came from that empire and seeing just all the iterations of how they transformed from them to today. It, it's truly awesome, and uh, you know that's for another. Uh, day. We find something interesting. Okay. In Egypt, ancient Egypt, we'll include that on our to-do list for possible episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preferred Shares podcast. Please like and subscribe and share us with anyone you think might enjoy. Finally, we welcome all feedback on how we can improve. We look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Thank you.